0: Writer Jordan Salama got the idea for his latest story, the way lots of good reporters do, by observing life around him. In this case, it was life underground, in the New York City subway system.
1: There were a lot of kids selling candy on the subway over the last six to eight months or so, and it was something that people were noticing.
0: Something that started as a quiet trend that has grown to be much more obvious. To city commuters, at least.
1: And the more you exist in the city, especially on certain lines of the subway, the more you'll notice it day after day. And when you see a small girl or a small boy who can't be more than eight years old walking alone through lurching subway cars, it becomes to be something where they're like, well, what's going on here?
0: Which is saying something because people are always hustling in the New York City subways. Singers, dancers, people selling fruit, selling their own art. And now in that mix is a new
1: wave of women and children selling candy. My idea with this story was just to better understand this group of people and what they were going through. What I didn't expect when I was reporting this story is that they would all be from one place.
0: These candy sellers are nearly all from Ecuador. Specifically, they are Quechua-speaking indigenous families from Ecuador's central highlands, and they're part of a group of nearly 100,000 migrants who've arrived to New York City since the spring of 2022. They're the focus of Jordan's recent cover story for New York Magazine called The Candy Sellers." Your article opens with a young woman, a kid, really, named Gloria. She's 16, but she is a mom of a newborn. Can, can you tell me a little bit about her?
1: So I first met Gloria on on this platform. Um, again, yeah, she's 16. She's an identical twin. And she has a daughter who is, she's now, I guess, nine months old. She was born in early November, just a couple days after Gloria walked across the border into the United States. She's selling candy all day. She starts work about 10 10:30 in the morning and they work until about 6:30 in the evening and she's just one of a large extended family that's doing this along the 7 train um cousins and her sister and her mom who kind of watches over all of them and they spend the entire day underground when i asked gloria where she bought her candy she told me she didn't know the name of the store but that she knew exactly how to get there that you take the Q59 bus exactly 22 stops from the R train and, and you'll find it. And so I did that. I took the Q59 bus, 22 stops, and I got off and I found a wholesaler in Maspeth, Queens that caters to a lot of stationary stores and convenience stores in the city.
0: They're gathering up boxes of gum, candy, fruit snacks, then selling items for $2 a piece. After an eight-hour day, Jordan says someone like Gloria might take home $40. Some days it's better than that. Other days it's nothing. She was robbed once of her M&Ms. Still, Jordan says not selling is not really an option.
1: It's a way to make money quickly, even though it's not a lot of money in New York. Um, And it's a method of early survival until another job can be found.
0: To be your reporting helped to crystallize, um, you know, not just the migrant crisis here, um, that it's like, oh, it's in a big Northern city now because we have been hearing that. Um, But that this crisis is becoming more embedded in something that is so mundane, something so mundane as a a daily commute. And I was wondering how you would characterize now how visible the issue is and how different things are.
1: It's extremely visible. It is the kind of thing where when I mentioned that I was working on the story to people, everybody would be like, yeah, yeah, I've seen those kids. Yes, I've seen those families selling in the subway. But nobody seemed to know exactly who they were, where they came from, and why things had changed in this way.
0: Today on the show, the kids selling candy on the subway. I'm Yasmin Khan, in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around.
1: This episode is brought to you by Discover.
0: How are these Ecuadorian migrants coming to the U.S.? Can you describe what their journeys are like?
1: These days, Ecuadorians wanting to come to the United States in the informal way, that is to say, without papers, without a visa, there are two popular routes. One way is flying to a Central American country that doesn't require visas for Ecuadorians and then making the rest of the way north through Central America and Mexico to the U.S.-Mexico border. The other way, which is cheaper and more informal and has exploded in popularity over the last couple of years, is making a treacherous journey through a jungle called the Darien, which is on the border of Colombia and Panama. It's a rainforest that is the only break in the Pan-American highway um, that stretches from Alaska all the way down to Patagonia in Argentina. There's no road there. So it's like a 66-mile stretch of really untamed jungle. And it's become a very popular route for migrants wanting to come to the United States. They'll fly to a country like Ecuador or to Colombia. In the case of the Ecuadorians, they will just continue north through Colombia, cross this gap with the help of smugglers, and then keep going either on foot or by bus or a mix of both until they get to the border with the US. From the people I spoke with, it takes about a month. People are really going as fast as they can with the little money that they have. They're not eating a lot. They're not sleeping well. um, And a lot of them are traveling together with their kids.
0: Yeah, you even spoke to a 4-year-old who had arrived that way.
1: Oh, yeah, and you might want to know how that came out. I was on the the subway speaking with this this 4-year-old on on the train as her family was returning home from a day selling candy in the subway, and I had a Spanish language copy of The Little Prince in my backpack. She looked like she was restless since she's 4, so I said, "Would you like to read this with me?" Sure. Okay. The Little Prince starts with a line about the virgin jungle, La Selva, in the Spanish translation that I had. And as soon as I read that line, she looked at me and she goes, I came from the jungle. Oh my gosh. And then she stopped me again a few lines later and she said, are there boats in the jungle where the little prince comes from? And I said, why do you ask? And she said, because there were boats in the jungle that I came through. We took boats and then we walked. And it's a moment like that when it's just astonishing how much people are going through. And these little, these small children, not fully realizing the extent and the gravity of what's going on. She was essentially narrating to me how her family traversed the Darien Gap without telling me that she was narrating how her family was traversing the Darien Gap. And it only took a story from a a children's storybook to get that out because she's a child.
0: Wow. What did the people that you spoke with say about what it was like for them when they arrived at the U.S. border after this long journey.
1: I keep remembering a conversation that I had with this woman, Ana, the 28-year-old candy seller who has the nine-year-old and five-year-old daughters and an eight-month-old son. She and her husband flew to Panama and then continued by land up through Central America until they got to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, And when they got to the U.S.-Mexico border, they crossed the Rio Grande at Eagle Pass, Texas, where they were detained. They were kept for about three days. Uh, Anna told me that she applied for asylum. Then they were released at a church. At that church, they were presented with one of two options of how to proceed. Um, One of those options was you can pay for a plane ticket or a bus ticket or however you want to go to your next destination. Or they said, we have these buses that the Texas government is paying for to try to get migrants to other cities. And those cities were Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. Anna wanted to come to New York. The bus was free. She's they're a family of five. They chose the bus
0: when they get to New York, literally, when they get off the bus, if that's how they're arriving, where do they go?
1: If they want to enter a shelter, they go to one of these uh, one of a few processing centers, but the most known of which is the Roosevelt hotel. Um, and there they can apply for a spot in a shelter. Now, what I've been told by people like shelter workers and aid workers in the city is that if you register at a shelter, they will sign your kids up for school. So in the case of some of the the few people who I met, the candy sellers whose kids are not in school, they did not go that route. They probably went directly to a rented room or an apartment, usually through a connection or a family member. So it really depends on the extent to which people already have connections in the city. A lot of people really want their kids to be in school, and so many of the children that New Yorkers will see selling candy in the subway are selling candy after school with their parents because their parents have nowhere else to put them and they have to work. But then there are families who have chosen for the time being not to enroll their children in school because those children have to work, because the family needs to make money.
0: What is the city doing to house people?
1: The city is is offering rooms and shelters to people who are arriving here. But they have also expressed that that in recent weeks that the city has reached a breaking point that they really are unable to house all the people who are coming. The dual issue with housing here is also the fact that people are unable to find work. And as long as people are unable to find work, they're unable to pay for their own housing. And because there are, also, there are so many people here who need to find housing in informal, under the table, all cash is to say, ways. Um, housing prices for those undocumented communities have also skyrocketed. So it's this kind of interconnected, perfect storm of, of issues that are causing people either to rely on shelters or to work in really precarious ways, such as selling candy in the subway, to be able to afford to rent a single room for, let's say, a four or five person family.
0: You talked with groups of cousins, some as young as four, selling candy on the subway. How do the kids describe what it's been like for them?
1: It's not a comfortable experience. The subway is not a comfortable place for anybody to be for long extended periods of time, but that's especially the case for kids. First of all, just on a good day, the air quality in the New York City subway system is markedly worse than the air quality above ground. And so one can imagine an infant or a four-year-old or a 14-year-old and how that could get to be very uncomfortable very quickly. But also things happen on the New York City subway platform that are not pleasant at all. I've seen kids be yelled at. One 5-year-old girl who I spoke with was almost pushed on the train and her mother had to grab her to prevent her from falling onto the tracks. She was almost pushed onto the tracks.
0: Oh my god.
1: As one can imagine there's definitely food insecurity, really really bad issues of food insecurity in these in these families and while they're selling on the subway most of the kids I spoke with weren't really eating anything at all. Not drinking much water, not eating um sometimes they were eating the, like a packet of candy that they were selling, but that's that's about it. And they're working through the day.
0: You wrote how, when there are some moments of downtime, in the subway system for these candy sellers, they are often watching or making TikTok videos. What kind of videos are they? Are they watching, and and what kind of video would a candy seller be making and posting?
1: Remember, these are in a lot of cases, they're kids, teenagers, or young adults in their early 20s. They're the kinds of videos that you would imagine young people are are making at that age. They're dance videos to popular Ecuadorian artists, their music videos, but a lot of them are related to their current situation. How so? When I say their current situation, I mean, if on the subway platform, they're exposing themselves as people who are going through great hardship in this country, on TikTok, they are projecting that they are living the American dream. These videos are sometimes recorded on the subway platform, but it's never entirely apparent that people are working while they're making these videos. This is the curated version of the candy sellers. They use these words, sueño americano, the American dream, over and over again in their TikTok posts. And it's a really interesting entry point to this greater world of migration TikTok. People will also post TikToks of their journeys to the United States so that you have kids some of the same kids who end up selling candy on the platform once they get here right posting tiktoks from inside the darien gap or that were filmed while they were inside the darien gap or tiktoks of you know the moment when they cross the u.s mexico border when they cross that fence or moments when families are reuniting at the airports or at the bus terminals when when people are finally arriving in new york so and all in the comments you'll see people saying things like you know have faith you're almost there keep going you'll 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 almost be there. You'll make it. You can do it. And also, how did you do this? How much money does it cost? What route did you take? So these are also, these TikToks serve as crucial points of information for this community. And a lot of the migration experts, a few of the migration experts who I spoke with, believe that it is actually facilitating the journey. And maybe, and this is a point that still needs to be studied. We wonder how much it is actually encouraging more people to leave Ecuador not knowing exactly what life is going to be like when they come to New York.
0: After the break, why more Ecuadorian children are migrating to the U.S. than ever before. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. You write that these new arrivals are part of the largest wave of Ecuadorian immigrants since the turn of the century. Why are people leaving now more than before?
1: This has become really prevalent in the news now in the United States, but for a long time, Ecuador has undergone this very severe security crisis, socioeconomic crisis, where, as one might imagine, indigenous people are heavily affected, especially in rural areas. Just on August 9th, a presidential candidate in Ecuador was assassinated. Um, Narco traffickers have started to dominate large regions of the country. Um, it is a very dangerous place to be for people who live. There's a lot of extortion. There's a lot of debt. And so people are leaving because life is becoming untenable for them where they're living.
0: Yeah. There's always been migration from Ecuador to the US. How is it different now?
1: This is a very important question because it is different now. And I was told by migration experts who study different exoduses from from Ecuador over the years, that there have been three historic waves of Ecuadorian migration to the United States dating back to the 1960s. And they've all been caused by a whole web of different complex reasons from the decline of the Panama hat trade to falling oil prices to the dollarization of the economy. But now we're in the third historic wave here. And the biggest difference is that people are actually migrating together, families are migrating together. In the past, it was the case that perhaps a single man would be the the head of the household would migrate first, establish a footing in a city like New York, and then after perhaps several years, call for the rest of, of his family to join him. And then maybe it was not just one man, but both parents who would go and then call for the kids who were staying with a grandparent in Ecuador um, to come once they get their footing. But now, and the reasons for this are still being examined and studied, entire families are migrating together. That is parents and their children. And that is one of the main reasons why we're seeing this kind of selling in the subway is because it's a childcare issue. Your piece also points out that
0: this type of vending with women and and children out on the streets selling sweets, that it's a common practice in South America. Do you think that these families expected that they'd be doing the same thing in the U.S.?
1: I think that in large parts, the kids who don't expect to be doing this, and it's the adults who have an understanding that they're probably going to have to do whatever they can to sell to survive. It also depends on who was selling in this way back home and who wasn't. And- the people who were selling in this way, such as Ana, the 28-year-old woman who I mentioned, who's one of the main people in the in the article, who would go from her small town in the mountains to Quito for days at a time on a 12-hour bus ride in order to sell in the market there. This is more normal to her in the sense that she is selling, but not normal in the sense that this used to be happening in the highlands of the Andes and selling produce, and now it's selling packaged candies in one of the noisiest, busiest metro systems in, in the United States.
0: Yeah, I think it was Anna who told you that she did not expect life to be so hard when she got to the U.S. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: What, what were her expectations, you think?
1: I don't think that she knew. I, I think that she had one relative who was here, but she knew that she had to get out of Ecuador. She knew that she had to get her kids out of Ecuador and she was willing to do whatever it took But I don't think that she realized it would be as difficult, that it would be as challenging. I think that she imagined that there would be more support or that the city would be better equipped, perhaps as it has been in the past when there were fewer people. So it's difficult to imagine how how hard it is. I mean, this is a family that's eating just white rice at night for dinner, um, that's sleeping five people to a single mattress in a rented room in a very overcrowded house with people. It's a really difficult life. And- I think that she's been here for enough months where she's starting to question, when's it going to get better?
0: Right. As you've been saying, the city is struggling to provide support, but that there are some community groups who are trying to fill in the gaps. What does that
1: landscape look like? In a lot of cases, it's volunteers. In other cases, it's social workers. In other cases, it's public health organizations and hospitals. But I hone in on this group that I went into the subway with in order to learn these stories from people called Voces Latinas. And Voces Latinas is is a community-based organization that helps to provide support to to migrants, largely in, in the realm of healthcare and, and social services, um, to migrants arriving from Latin America, and largely female migrants and, and migrants from the LGBT community. And in their case, they work through this model that's called the Promotora model, which is training Formally undocumented in a lot of cases, migrants from Latin America, to then go out and do the outreach, paying them to go do the outreach, employing them to do this outreach, to try to help people better their own situation who have just recently arrived.
0: Sounds like people need traditional support services, basics like housing, food, things like that, but also just someone they could trust to sort of point them in the right direction on things or maybe someone to just someone who's been in the city for a little bit longer to help some a newcomer understand how to read the subway map or or something like that how to how to navigate even just the small things here
1: right and actually with voces latinas the next step after the promotoras kind of establish that trust is is they will work with a staff navigator who's often a social worker to help do exactly that to navigate, help people navigate the city. And New York is not an easy place for anybody to navigate, let alone somebody who's come from such a vastly different context. And in a lot of cases, this is not something that I've mentioned yet, um, people are illiterate. They don't read and write very well. They didn't go to much school. And so that makes things, of course, exponentially more difficult. So the more in-person support that can be provided, it seems the more effective that support can be.
0: There are more Ecuadorian migrants coming. I'm wondering where you see this situation headed. Or just as as a reporter, what are you going to be looking for in the months to come?
1: I don't know where this situation is heading because a lot of it, I think, depends on policies that the city and the federal government will enact. There's a lot of people, for example, who are pushing for expedited work permits for people. Because once people get work authorization, they no longer have to work under the table only in cash. They can work more formally. And therefore, it opens up a lot more job opportunities that people aren't working in these vastly more informal ways of making a little bit of extra money. So there's all sorts of things that can happen that can change the situation quite rapidly, I think. I wonder what that will look like six months from now, a year from now. I'll keep checking in. I know that all these organizations will keep checking in with their people too. And together we'll get a better understanding of what's going on as the months continue. Um, but, you know, these things tend to move kind of slowly. So it could be a year more of seeing a lot of people selling candy on the subway.
0: Jordan, thank you so much for your time and for your reporting. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for this conversation.
0: Jordan Salama is a journalist whose article, The Candy Sellers, was published in New York Magazine. Jordan's also the author of the book, Every Day the River Changes, Four Weeks Down the Magdalena. And that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Yasmin Khan, in for Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.